We are in the book, the Gospel of Genesis, continuing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Word of God. And so, um, and one of you, while you're up, would you turn on those lights, just for the sake of everyone else? Um, we're going to be, again, in, in Genesis 34 this morning, um, or this afternoon, I guess, is what it is now, isn't it? So, um, yeah, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and it looks like Marcy is very quick to run and get one for you, Ricky. Very, very cool. Thank you, Marcy, for that. That's right. We're very, very pleased by that. Read along with me the first few verses, and then we're going to... um, developed. God willing, we'll be going through the whole chapter. And I have to be honest and tell you, as a father, this is a very difficult chapter to read. Um, to be honest, more than just because of what happens to a daughter, but because of how a father doesn't, doesn't respond. And um, there are a few things that bother me more than something like this. So um, read with me, Genesis 34, starting in verse 1. The dine of the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, and saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Let's stop there and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we need your touch. We need your hand upon us um, to do so much more than just cause us to have fun in such a treacherous text. To learn. Father, we recognize that there are some people we will have the benefit of learning by their example and others we must rather learn by heeding the warning that their life has been. And certainly, this is one of those moments. And God, I just, I just pray right now for every one of us. You know what we're going through. And God, you know how to speak our own language. And so I pray for something supernatural to take place here today. God, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would Speak to each of us in our ear in the manner which we can understand. And in doing so, God, that we would be met right where we need to be met. To strengthen that which is weak. To prune off that which is unimportant. Or worse yet, drawing but unnecessary. To challenge that which is complacent and warn that which is unruly. To bring comfort where there's no comfort and courage where there's discouragement. To bring support, God, where we may feel left uh, in the crowd. And God, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being able to open your word. Please immerse me in your spirit and fill me to overflowing that your scripture would come alive. God, we really, really want you to speak to us. So take my lips and attach them to your heart. 
do your work now, we pray. As we commit this time, do you have your way, Lord, we pray. Save, challenge, exhort, support, encourage. May we all walk out of here that much more encouraged. And even in this text, cause it to come alive, we pray, God, before us and meet us right where we're at, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say this morning as I would any or afternoon, I suppose, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Some of you, by this point, you kind of check out because you just know that's going to be said. Good. Well, at least know that it should be said every time you hear this. Um, my, my desire always is for you to be a Berean, to search the word and to make sure that that's what's holding you to it. Now, let's start in the fact, first of all, of where Jacob's supposed to be going and why he's where he is. Because that really helps us get a deeper understanding of really the whole situation we're about to be in. And back in chapter 26, uh, Jacob's father, his name is, is Isaac, was in a town called Beersheba. Um, Beersheba means a well of an oath or um, the well of seven. And, and with that, this was a place after digging several wells, finally finds one. Uh, they were ultimately, his father and, he, and his family will ultimately move to the town of Hebron. Hebron is the town, or Hebron, by the way, means um, communion or fellowship or association. And it's, it's in the south, it's, it's south of Jerusalem, and of course, certainly west of Jordan, actually west of the Dead Sea. And, and that's where his father is. Jacob has been gone for somewhere between roughly 20 to 30 years, and he has um, fled. Well, and, and the whole idea, of course, is that his brother was trying to kill him, Mom tries to spare his life by sending him out, but it's interesting what Mom says. You see, please understand, in this, his twin brother, who is the hunter, hairy and red, um, perfect for hunting, he is, uh, he's married a couple women. And one of the girls that he's married is a girl named Ahalabama. Can you just say that? It's just fun to say. Ahalabama. You see, that's kind of fun. Now, Ahalabama, by the way, is a Hivite. Now, the, the daughters are from Hittite or Hivite origin. Now, that's key. Because what we read is, as his twin brother has married these girls, and he's never seemed to be a man interest, his brother, a man interested in anything really relatively or emotionally spiritual, I mean, anything, to be honest, that really involves this living God. And so, when he marries them, we read they're a grief of mind to his parents. So you've got a twin brother, and he's married a Hivite, and a Hittite. Hittites and Hivites. And as he does... I mean, you go, well, who are those people? Those are people who used to live in the land of Canaan that we call Israel today. They don't exist anymore. The chances are you won't run into anyone and say, hi, I'm a Hivite. And if so, you'd probably say, you're putting me on. But uh, in those days, they were existing, and they were people that were known for their cruelty. They were also people that were sort of known for having no real law. I mean, they're just kind of people that, I mean, think of sort of the stereotype of Amsterdam. And that's kind of what you have for a culture, a group of people that are way big on drugs, and very seriously so, and the people that are way big on anything that's openly sexual. Now, that's going to play into this, but so when his twin brother marries into that particular area, his family really hates that. No, note that. Now, Jacob is fled, and so what mom says to get Jacob out of the house is, you know, you know Jacob's a, he's in his 40s, he should be having a wife by now, don't you think? But I don't want to marry any of these women around here. He shouldn't be marrying a Hittite or a Hivite. You know how bad that is. You know how much grief that was with his twin brother. Let's get him back to my family up in Padamaram, which is in the area of Syria, and let's get him a wife there. For which then Jacob will flee. And mom tells him, by the way, honey, don't worry. I'll send you a letter in a couple days when your brother stops wanting to kill you and you can come back home. And that letter never comes. It's been 20 years now. 
Uh, and Jacob left as God told him to leave Sodom around and actually go home. Now, where's home? Assumedly at this point, it's still Hebron. Uh, and so Jacob's on his way, or so you would think, but on the way, he's got a problem. He has fled a guy who is a massive rip-off artist. That's his father-in-law. You've got to be careful who you marry into. Uh, and that's Laban. And he's left him behind. And there's a line drawn at a place called Mitzpah. And that line is drawn that says, basically, Jacob is not going to go north of this line. And that man, Levan, is not going to go south of it. So this is the line. You stay up there. I'll stay down here. So he knows he can't go that direction. But in front of him is still a brother that he thinks wants to kill him. And that's been 20 plus years. That's a long time to hold a grudge. But if he still does hold a grudge, he's probably invented all kinds of ways of killing you slowly. So you really don't really want that. So he sends a group of things ahead. He sends of all the animals that he's obtained, he puts them in nine herds and sends them in front of him. And then of his 12 children that he has at this moment, 11 boys and the youngest is a girl, or at least one of the youngest is a girl, that he sends them up in order to where, to be honest, his favorite, his favorite wife with his favorite son, the only child born from her at this point, come hang out in the back. Now, how would you feel if you were one of the other kids set up in the front? And the idea is, well, don't worry, if he got any, takes all of this other stuff and he just starts killing people like crazy, he'll kill you first before he gets to my favorite. You know, I mean, how do you feel about that? And you kind of get the idea that, that his dad has always sort of played this way. Because he had this wife that he really wanted, marries her sister because that's part of the rip-off artist of the father-in-law, wants to marry both girls, and he has their handmaidens, and from that comes 12 children already. There will be a 13th coming because those are 11 boys. A 14th will come and actually kill his favorite wife in the process. Now, on his way down, he gets this and he just thinks, well, and, and he sends someone out. The, the, the servant comes back and says, oh, we did find your brother. And we told him that you're really excited about meeting him and really want to reconcile. And he's coming with 400 men. And at that point, you would imagine, like anyone, Jacob starts to panic. Why would he come with 400 men? Certainly, there's only one reason, to kill me and kill me slowly. And so, with that in mind, Jacob starts putting his sort of house in order and again, less favored up front, and then ultimately when he actually connects with his brother, his brother wraps his arms around him and kisses him, which is one of the strangest moments in all of Scripture because it's the last thing that he would have expected. And now he's got this situation, and his brother, with his 400 men, and his brother says, all right, well, now that we've reconciled, let's go. Let's go back home to Dad. You can follow me. I'll show you the way. We're going to head, if you will, east of the Jordan down to where I live in the area of Seir, and then we'll cut across and see Dad. Jacob, with his family, with, his, uh, with, with the remainder of his livestock, just basically says, well, you know what, you go ahead and I'll catch up. And he says, well, then let me leave my guys with you. You know, this is some pretty dangerous territory in between there and here. I know it because I dwell in it. So why don't I leave my guys with you to kind of keep you safe? And he says, why do I even need that? And so with that, his brother heads south to the area. And again, this is what Jacob could have done. Now, right before he meets his brother, he gets a name change, but we'll find that there's only once that his name is called that, and it's actually the, the territory and not the name here. I think it's something like 12 times in this chapter he's going to be called Jacob. But he shouldn't be called Jacob. He should be called Israel. Now, please hear me out as we get into our text. We call it the Simon, Simon, Peter, Peter complex. You know, even like Simon, and that in essence means unstable, gets a name change to Peter, he doesn't hit a switch and instantly become rocky. Instead, what happens is he goes from Simon to Simon Peter to Peter, much like all of us. Now, I don't know when you gave your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, or even if you have. If you haven't, it's a very simple thing. We all started as sinners and therefore guilty. Christ paid the price on the cross so that all of our guilt could be paid for, rose again and offers us complete and absolute absolution. 
innocent payment for that pardon. And if we accept that gift, he not only pays for our past, but gives us a new future. And that new future is what we call a new creation, according to Second Corinthians, when it says that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The problem is, we have often, I don't know about you, for me, I gave my life to Jesus at 19. I was a 19-year-old sinner, and I was an infant in Christ. I was really good at sinning and terrible at being a Christian. And I, unfortunately, didn't have anything around me to actually model, to follow an example. And so as a result of that, I just lived like I did before and tried to make a Christian, which, by the way, doesn't work out real well, if you know anything about that. So for me, it was like Simon, Simon with a hint of Peter on my way over to Peter, if that makes sense. And that's what you're going to find with Jacob, and you're going to find it with every one of us. Unfortunately, this is a Jacob chapter, if that makes sense. And much like all of us, there's a part of us where we accept that gift of Jesus Christ, and even many years later, we still find ourselves resorting back to the old person we used to be, who's rotten and stinky and dead and crucified and should have been left at the grave where he belongs. What happens when you do? try to drag the old you over, I'll tell you what happens. You hurt people. You hurt yourself and you hurt those around you. And that becomes to me the most, really to be honest, the hardest part to swallow. Because I can, I can handle hurting me. It's the people I love around me that hurts more. Jacob is supposed to have gone south with his brother. Instead, he does something strange. He actually heads due west and then a bit north, which is in essence the opposite direction of his brother. So though he said, you go ahead, I'll catch up, Jacob really had no intention of doing so. And now Jacob is now heading in a direction God didn't tell him to go in. And much like what happens when you try to take the old person you were and follow his direction. You turn on too many Disney shows. When you turn on the Disney show, you hear the song, you've got to follow your heart. And oh, you're right, I need to follow my heart. Where is my heart leading me? It's leading me to this place. And so Jacob isn't where he belongs. As a matter of fact, Jacob is in a place he should not be. It's a place called Shechem. Now, for what it's worth, this place today, well, let me say this, this place becomes very fundamental because it's this place that he'll actually find a well. Jacob will find a well here. And this town, this town Shechem, will, will, its name will evolve, as most names do. And Shechem becomes Shechem, and Shechem becomes Shechem, and Shechem becomes Shechar. Now, that may not mean much to you until you actually get to John chapter 4. Because in John chapter 4, there was a woman in this area who was at a well that Jacob had, a town called Shechar. Perhaps you're familiar with it. And I find it interesting, because if you remember, that girl has had five husbands. Now she's just living with a guy. Now, I find that interesting comparing to where we are now. Go back for a moment, just to the last chapter. Uh, on the way, again, God says, Return, listen, to the land of your fathers and to your family. That's what God said in 31.3. In chapter 33, verse 18, we read that Jacob came safely to Shechem. It's not a place he should be. And he bought a parcel of land for a hundred pieces of money. Now, Sort of a standardized coin really is invented by the Persians for the most part. And so here he is, and he's paid 100 pieces of money. We don't even know really what that is, but he's bought land that he doesn't belong to be, to be buying. Cause he's not, I mean, think about it. He's supposed to be catching up with his brother. Is it really time to buy property and stay somewhere? This is the second place, by the way, he stayed. This is the last place he played. Uh, he did this with a place called Sukkot. Also a place, by the way, where he bought a house in that place and um, made some boots for his animals. 
so he went from there, and then from there he went to this place. This is the second place he's actually sort of played real estate game on his way of catching up with his brother. Now, I would imagine his brother's not that slow. He is now roughly 59 to 61 miles away from where he should be. Now, while he's there, by the way, we read that he buys property. And notice, who does he buy the property from? Take a look at it. You tell me. This is a short quiz. Chapter 33, it's at the end. Who does he buy property from? You can just blurt it out if you can see it. Okay, from Shechem's father. And what's his name? His name is Hamor. Now, by the way, Hamor means donkey. So there you go. Now, I don't know who's named donkey, but would you want a dad named donkey? And that's the polite name for it. Now, notice, by the way, in that verse, though, and the reason I'm having you look at it, is he has sons. Did you notice that? From the sons of Hamor. Did you notice that? And I find this interesting. It's easy to overlook this. But if he's got sons, that means there's more than one boy that's a son of Hamor. Are you with me on that? Because you can't have plural unless either he's multi-personality or there's more than one. We're going to go with the second. Now, so here it is. He's got a handful of boys. Hamor's got a handful of boys. We'll just say the two of you because it gets weird when we start adding Marcians. Aren't we, Nina? Well, of those, he's got one son named Shechem. We don't read of any other of the son's names. We know Shechem. And how do we know Shechem? Because where is he buying the property at? Shechem. Do you kind of get the idea here a little bit about this? There's some form of, I, I kind of get the idea there's a bit of a favorites playing even with Hamor. And the reason is, I mean, this, this kid, Prince Harming, might I just call him, is so popular or so favored by dad that he names the town and the country after him at this point. So, you know, and let's just say, and by the way, he bought property from Francis. No, not Francis, the person from the area of Francis, because we love Francis so much, we decided to call this area the Borough of Francis. You kind of get the idea. There's a favorite being played. And the way that he talks to his dad in this particular chapter, it's very evident he's spoiled. So you have a dad named Jacob who's playing favorites with his wife, with, by the way, the one son he has. And you have another dad who's now playing favorites, apparently, with his son in a town, by the way, that he's bought it. Now, he's not where he belongs. And he's bought this property. Now, with that in mind, for what it's worth, chapter 34, verse 1. Now, Dinah, and God makes very careful mention that she's the daughter of Leah. Now, why is that important? Because Leah is the other wife, the one he doesn't really love. It's the one who has had seven children now, six boys and this girl. And even with this, her desire is to be loved by her husband. Surely, she has sons. Surely, my husband will love me now. Oh, the Lord has heard. He's heard my cries. Surely he'll love me now. Levi, love you, means attached. Surely my husband will be attached to me. I've born him three children. And now I'll praise the Lord. And so he names the, she names the fourth Judah. And it's interesting because it appears as if she's sort of naming the children, by the way, because it's almost like it's an unimportant issue. As a matter of fact, this father will play so heavy on this that he'll try to disqualify every son so he can give the firstborn status to Joseph, who is, by the way, number 11 of the boys, but the firstborn of the other girl, the one that he loves. So you've got a daughter who, in a particular culture, outside of the Jewish culture, outside every other culture, girls aren't even people, they're property. And I don't mean that in any mean way, I'm just telling you facts. That's the way it was viewed. I mean, if you, view, if you harmed a large animal, like an ox, or if you harmed a daughter, we're talking not about her virtue, but about otherwise, the repercussions were sometimes worse for the animal than it was for the girl. Now, I'm not telling you that's not biblical. God did not give that as a biblical mandate. That was a Middle Eastern mandate. 
And so this is where Jacob is. Jacob has gone into area which God promised he's going to drive out the people. And one of the reasons is their complete lack of care for humanity, especially women in this case. And so now here he is. He's shown up in town. And in verse 1, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob. God makes careful mention. It's the first mention of the word Jacob, notice. Went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, whether you like it or not, it seems like so many of Christian terms have become very, very negative in the sight of the world. Preached, right? We don't say that word anymore. I'm not going to use the Bible, Bible bash. It's, it's amazing how you can take words that are so popular and actually only use in a positive light in Scripture and make them very negative well, as, soon as, as soon as you allow the world to define them. Well, well, in this, I find it interesting, for what it's worth, that this concept of sheltering becomes such a negative term. Now, I tell you, in a, in, a, in a place called London, shelter is a very important thing. Every time it rains, shelter is important. When it snows, shelter is important. But there's more than just the weather and the adverse conditions. There's the adverse spiritual conditions, by the way. And as a parent, it is, we are required, by the way, to shelter our children. And you go, but then they'll be ignorant. Yeah, actually, they will be. That doesn't mean they won't be street smart. There's a way to raise your children to be street smart, but without having the scars. This particular girl has gone out because what she really wants to do is to see what the girls are like. Now, please understand something, or see at least what the town was like. Now, notice it says she went to see the daughters in the land. Now, poor girl. She's got 11 brothers. We don't read that she has any other sisters. Now, by reason of absence, we don't know whether there are other girls in the family. We just know that none of them are mentioned. So one thing we're sure of, though, is she has 11 brothers. This girl's looking for some women time. It isn't like she can paint the nails of her brothers or she can be, they can't talk fashion or any of this stuff. I mean, they don't even want to go to Starbucks, for goodness sake. I mean, she wants some form, of girl, some form of girl time. And the only girl that we know in this family, to be honest, well, are the four women that all happen to be married to Jacob. And so she's, you know, she kind of would rather have someone her own age. And so she kind of ventures out, can you blame her for that? She's a, she's a country girl from Padamaram. She winds up in the city of Shechem, and she wants to see what city girls are like. Well, the problem is she's entered into this thing without any form of protection, and she's gone alone. Now, it tells us from this then that when the Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, and that's why I call him Prince Harming, saw her, that he took her and lay with her and violated her. Now, in the Hebrew, for what it's worth, there are specific terms that speak of something as a matter of fact in a verb tense. It's called cal. There are certain things that talk about whether you did it or it happened to you, whether it's finished or unfinished. And there are also things that are spoken of in the intensive. It means something that really happened. One of those tenses is the pl intensive. And this particular word for violate, for what it's worth, literally means to cast down, to force, to deal hard with. Uh, and it's in the pl. And what, what, in other words, I mean, we don't have to draw too many hard conclusions on this. It's pretty obvious what happened here. He took her, but it says that he took her, in, in essence, what happened is that he took her, that was matter of fact, that he lay with her, that was matter of fact, and then he violated her, and that was forceful. Now, somewhere down the line, it appears as if she put herself in a compromising situation, and he just basically forced the end of the deal. Now, I'm not trying to, now, the reason I say that is, let's put things into perspective for a second. This girl's a country girl, and she's walked into a big city, and she's walked in on alone. She's not taking a brother with her. She wants some girl time. She wants to see what the girls are like, what my peeps like. She walks into town, and lo and behold, who does she see? The prince of the land. Now think about that, especially if you're raised on Disney, what that would look like. 
right? He's charming. He's well-groomed. He's a bit eloquent, right? I mean, he comes driving up in a limo or in a stretch Hummer or something kind of sweet. He's got money. Everybody knows him. Doesn't matter what shop he goes to, they give it to him. Doesn't matter what restaurant he gets in. And this girl gets the treatment. Ooh, she didn't think that was what was going to happen when she got up this morning. I'm going to show up in town. Now think about this, because this is what's paraded to our daughters today. It's what's paraded to you, isn't it? You know, isn't this what you want? A guy that's got some bling bang. A guy that's got, that has no cap on his credit card. A man that when he walks into some place, everyone knows his name. And it's like, you know, the, that club's full. But the moment he walks up to the bouncer, they're going to let you and him in. And it doesn't matter what restaurant. Oh, don't worry about it. Oh, take care of it. Tell you what, Prince Harming, we'll just put it on your bill. We'll charge your dad the donkey. King donkey. It says somewhere down the line. And, 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 and it says, by the way, in verse 3, and I'll develop it as a, as a whole, his, so, his soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. And I've got to tell you, these are very, very difficult verses to look at because you're like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Loved? God uses the term loved here? How could he use the term loved? This is the same term, achav, in the Hebrew, the same term in chapter 22 when it's introduced as a father giving up his only son up on a mountain and God will provide the same one when a son finds that son finds a wife and he loves her and now this term here I'm not going to tell you that's the problem with love and God wants to make it really clear because in the Hebrew by the way they call Hebrew a pure language because there's really no word that's really like filthy and negative you have to put words together to actually make a bad word I mean to trash talk takes some work in Hebrew like when you call someone a fool, you're calling them an empty head because you really just, there's no word for just fool or jerk or whatever. I mean, we have all kinds of words in the English language, and we have no shortage. But, and we can lend them a few. But in the Hebrew, that isn't the case. And so God wants us to know right from the beginning of this, you need to recognize that when it comes to the word love, there are always going to be many different definitions. And just because you have a definition doesn't mean your definition is universal. As a matter of fact, it's a pretty good possibility it's not. I mean, if really, I mean, and, and, and even though we, as, as English, as Americans, or as British, or wherever you've come from speaking English, to whatever degree you do, even though we have so many words, and we feel ourselves so descriptive, we still love ice cream, or gelato, or that meal, or our dog, or that movie, and we use the same word for all of those. Now, what God wants to make clear is there's two basic kinds of love in the world. We can talk about the five primary words for love in the Greek, but in regards to this, there are two basic kinds of love. There's a giving love and there's a taking love. That's as simple as we can get with it. The love of God has never been a taking love. It's been a giving love. It's, sacri it's sacrificial. It's surrendered. It's submitted. That is God's love, always for the benefit of the other person. In its simplest sense, it's you first. I'm crawling into your world and dying there. That's God's love. The problem is, let's be honest, even with all of us knowing as Christians, knowing what the word love means from God's perspective, we still operate from the other. When you're talking, you ever play the I love you game with anyone? You're talking to the phone, you go, I love you. And what you're really just doing is, please say you love me back. That's all I'm asking out of this, right? And so you go, I love you. And they don't respond. And you're like, oh, dang it. 
I love you. Maybe you didn't hear, you know? And it's, and it's like, no, what does that mean? It's like, I'm totally sacrificial and surrendered unto you, and I'm hoping you'll say the same. Is that really what we're doing at that moment? And you realize that though we, even as Christians, may operate from the, intellectually from the perspective of a sacrificial love, we still function in our hearts with the idea of a taking one. The, the issue, though, is we just actually have thinner parameters to what is allowable. Then we start talking about the world that's actually blown out those walls, and the difference is only, to be honest, what limitations you're given. I mean, within the Christian young scene, to be honest, it's like, okay, you'll land a girl or you'll land a guy, and what that means is you're kind of going out, and once you've done that, you can move on to the next person, because now she likes you, you've kind of gotten what you want. No, because that's as far as we would go. But if we weren't Christian, that would be having sex, and then we could move on to the next person, because we've conquered them. And we're doing the same thing, we've just brought in our parameters. Does that make sense? And it's no wonder why, then, we actually get cautious when we start thinking about a relationship, whether it be in the body of Christ or not. Because to be honest, what we really want is for the other person to have the kind of love that's selfless and surrenders so that we can have the kind of love that's selfish so they can serve us. Let's be honest. I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if you were selfless so you could serve me because I want to enter into a pretending to be selfless so you can serve me? Well, you don't find two people arguing over which one can serve the other one more. And in this text, please understand, God wants to make it clear, beloved, the word love is not to be dealt with lightly in Scripture, and it certainly isn't to be dealt with lightly with us. If, if, when God says, you want to see love, look at that, and he shows us a bloody, awful cross with his only begotten son hanging on there naked like a pound of meat. And he goes, that's what love is. And we're going to take that same word and bastardize it into what we do with it? God says, how could you do that? And then we're going to tell people, God loves you. Oh, by the way, I love my dog. And you think, wow, God loves me like you love your dog or like you love that meal or like ice cream or gelato or whatever. Or, you know, like you like it, like you love a, a latte. And all of a sudden you start to realize it's like we, start, we need to start inventing other words. But in this text, this poor girl... Somewhere down the line, she sees this guy. He's got everything. And in all that, we assume, by the way, from where she was in the family line, that she must be, to be honest, she could be as young as my daughter. She could be 14 years old, walking in a town like this, because all she really wants to do is check it out, because she's lonely. And she just wants someone. She just wants a friend, but she's not going to go out. I mean, there's, there's, to be honest, in this, Jacob's the guy who should be saying, look, it, let's at least go out together. Well, Dad, you're going to blow my rep. Yeah, but I tell you what, I'm going to save your rep in the end. He should be the one covering her in this situation, but she's kind of gone out alone. And I kind of get the idea that Dad just kind of let her go. Because in the end of it all, it just doesn't seem like she's that big of a deal to him. And if she really isn't that big of a deal to him, then it's no wonder why she found herself in this situation. All of a sudden, some guy comes over and he's giving her the time of day, and man, he's the buff. He's, the, he's got all this going on. They find up back at his palace, and she looks and goes, whoa, check this out. My dad lives in a tent. He's like, tent, let me show you. This is only the servants' quarters. And all of a sudden, you start, whoa, look at the marble and the, whoa, and is that, was that a real bear that we're walking on? And, you know, all of the, is that a real fireplace? Wow. And, you know, and he's like, check this out. And all of a sudden, he's like, you know, he's got cable or something. She's like, well, I've never seen this before. We can't fit one of those on our tent. He's like, I've got satellite dishes all over the house. I mean, all of a sudden, she's like, whoa, what's this? And all of a sudden, he's like, well, let me show you this other room. 
come over here and kick it with me for over. We're going to go over here and relax for a little bit. And all of a sudden she's there. She doesn't know better. And, and all of a sudden he kind of starts moving on her. And she's like, at first it's just like, whoa, check it out. The, like the coolest, hottest guy in all of the town likes me. And he does, according to this. I mean, he's really drawn. In his sick, twisted world, he loves her. But his definition of love is far from ours. In the end of it all, he just looks and says, you're the thing. And that's love to him. Love is, according to this, the world's love is a violating, polluting love. Look at it. He has polluted her. He has made it so that she has one option by the time he's done. He has forced himself on her. That's love? What kind of love rapes someone and calls it love? Now, whether that's getting somebody totally drunk and then going at it, whether that's maneuvering it in such a way so that there's no other real choice, come on, all the people do it. And in this community, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal to anyone. Nobody seems to be rebuking anyone for it, and it really just seems to be very culturally accepted. In other words, the freak in the whole thing is this poor girl, Dinah, because she's not from there. She doesn't know that everybody just, by the age of 12, they're all probably all lost their virginity anyway. What's wrong with you? Do you really think you're going to save yourself till marriage? What are you, what's wrong with you? And if you've got sucked into that because somehow in it, you've forgotten where you came from now, I'm here to let you know if you're in Christ, you're a new creation, make that choice now. From this point on, let's walk right. But that's you, as, and that's men too, ladies. And by the way, if any guy around here starts kind of playing Shechem with you, or whatever way that is, Shechem, Shechem, or whatever you want to call him, tell you what, let us know. God's called us pastors for a purpose, and we don't have a problem making clear that that's not acceptable in whatever ways are necessary. It is really important to us. Very, very important. So with it, he was attracted, verse 3, it says, and that means, by the way, that his soul clung to her. Notice it says, the daughter of Jacob, he loved the young woman, and then it says this, and here's one other thing I don't want you to miss, ladies. And in this culture, we can recognize it could go either way, men as well, but it says, and it says he spoke kindly. Can you say, Debar Lev? Debar Lev. Now, Debar, by the way, is the word that kind of means to communicate. Love like inside, like your heart. Levav. Now, there's two ways to take it. He either spoke from his heart or he spoke to her. So imagine if, and by the way, we don't even read that this all took place in a day. What if this took place in a month? What would it seem like a total no-no today? Probably won't seem like a total no-no at the beginning of March. It's like, come on. And all of a sudden, you can imagine, Dad doesn't seem to be stepping it up, but the brothers, by the way. Remember, she has six brothers that are full-blood brothers. Dad and Same dad, same mom. And you can imagine them going, what in the world are you doing? She's going, well, you know, check it out. It's a prince. The prince likes me. But yeah, but he seems kind of sleazy. Oh, come on. That's just a different culture. You just need to be more culturally sensitive. He speaks to my heart. He understands me. You ever have that? And you think this is a qualification? This is what qualifies a guy to be your, your man, your partner? Is it in the end of it all? His love is a taking love, a violating, a polluting love, but he can speak to your heart. 
Shakespeare. He's read a couple of Shakespeare sonnets, and he knows how to speak wax and wax eloquence and iambic pentameter. And somehow in it, he's stolen your heart. And because, you know, the heart's just en route to the rest of your body, according to this. And so with it, he's speaking kindly to her. And she's like, but he speaks to my heart, and he really knows me. He knows, well, he really knows you biblically. That's for sure at this point. So, verse, so here it is. She's been raped, but the most amazing thing is she seems like she's wound up still in his house. Now, I kind of get the idea. Now, please understand, when, a, when this happens to a girl in any culture, by the way, he's bought property, so he has rights within the town, but he, doesn't, he has rights to not be, to have this happen. She should have ran back to her house. Now, we don't read, by the way, at this point, that he's ever put any form of constraints on her, but it just appears to me that she's so love-struck at her age, to be honest, she doesn't want to go anywhere else. And so with this now, verse 4, Shechem speaks to his dad, the donkey, King Donkey, and he says, Notice how he speaks to his dad. Get me the young woman as a wife. There's no please. There's no question in all of this. He's a getter. Now, at this point, it appears as if he's kind of already got her. But at this point, and, and, and you, know, you know what the strange thing about this is? This is considered, this is what appears to make him more noble than his dad. Is that at least he wants to marry her at the end of it? Isn't that crazy? We will read he's more noble than his dad in their household. And you think, this punk is the most noble thing Shechem has to offer? I would say, get out of Shechem, if that's the way it is. Don't play here. Because you know what? It's lose-lose. So Jacob, by the way, verse 5, this shows you where Jacob is with it. Notice that he does not called, he's not called Israel. Heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. God makes clear, this is your daughter, Jacob. Now, the sons of his, his sons were with his livestock in the field. Which sons were these? The ones that were, by the way, um, her brothers. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Jacob does not step into this situation. What would you do? I can tell you, one way or another, I'm getting kicked out of Shechem that day. You, yeah, I don't, I don't even want to think about what would happen in a situation like that. I can only pray that I'd have the strength of Samson and the wisdom of Solomon and somehow do both. Uh, I'm not even sure you're going to know, homie, don't play that. So with that, it says, Hamor, now notice, Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now, we don't read anywhere that the father says, how dare you talk to me like that, or, you know, you really probably should have thought about this before you raped her, or any of that, really. Um, and by the way, praise the Lord, maybe that's why we have a smaller crew today, because we're obviously somewhere right between 13 and 17 on this message. But... But in it, it's like, there's, there, in this culture, it just seems like, and by the way, that's, you know, that can happen in a Christian culture. We've been told by people we knew and trusted that are older, I mean, considerably older, well, it's okay, you guys are engaged now, you buy, you know, I mean, you're going to get married anyways. And I'm thinking, well, then why not wait? I mean, if you really know that you're going to kind of, that this is going to happen, well, then why not wait? Because at least you can stand at the altar and say, you know what, we did that right. There's something about standing at the altar and having no regrets. But let me warn you of something on this. As somebody who's done marriage counseling for at least 20 years now, one of the most common, I, I can guarantee you, the vast majority of the things that you are dealing with after your marriage were planted in your uh, time of your uh, engagement. And that's the most classic of them all. You know, the guy looks at the, I mean, case in point, here it is. He's furious because his wife doesn't trust him. They've been married seven years now. And she's just convinced that he's going to go after this new secretary that's hired his place. He hasn't even really spoken to her yet. 
And he doesn't know why. He's like, come on, I've been faithful for seven years. I've given you no reason whatsoever for you to actually have this. He's feeling very much betrayed because how dare you not trust me? So we start poking and prodding. And and, and, and in the engagement time, they're in a compromising situation. By the way, that's step one or strike one. You know, it's kind of like, well, I don't know. He made the move. We were laying on the couch. It was one in the morning watching a movie. I don't know about you, but is there a part of you that thinks, this is really, this makes it too easy to do something stupid. And he gives you that classic guy line, you're just too beautiful. I can't help it. That locks in. Seven years after the marriage, She's had a couple puppies. She's not feeling so pretty anymore. You know, she's kind of carrying a little bit of the child weight on her hips. She's, you know, she's really, you know, she's just, she isn't the person she used to be seven years ago. But that new girl hired is too beautiful. And she puts that in her equation. And she goes, you're just too beautiful. I can't control myself. I can't help myself. And she goes, I'm not too beautiful anymore. She is. Can you see how that works? He thought he was giving her a compliment, and what he was doing was he was digging his own grave. And they had to ask for forgiveness for what they had done before and what God had done to change them since then, to change, to show them the difference of the people they'd become. Hey, don't buy those lines, please. And that's not just girls. We're aware of that. I mean, in the end of it all, the only real love that God in any way applauds is a selfless one. And I just say this. Find someone. You don't even have to find someone. God will put them beside you. I'm convinced of that. That is more in love with Jesus. You're convinced more in love with Jesus than you. You really feel like you have to be fully on your game with Christ to keep up with. That's the person you should be with. Someone that when you're actually next to him, your productivity increases. Your ministry starts to flourish. That says something. Man, if you're not around someone like that and they're kind of keeping you away from the Lord, believe it or not, according to Scripture, they've become an idol. And why would God applaud that? You know, I used to be really, really, really in love with the Lord. Then I met this girl. Well, that's a bad way to start something, isn't it? I'm going to tell you, there was a young man several years ago that had just given his life to Christ, but he lived among people and he he just wrestled with doubt. A man named Arthur. And I'm going to tell you, he... He kept himself pure from gals because he really wanted to, he was like, I'm not even going to go there until I really figure out where I'm really going to be with the Lord and all of this. Years later, I get an email and I get it this morning and the first line is, I don't know, you're the first person I wanted to tell, I am in love with Jesus Christ. And I can tell you what, my heart just melted. I know the years we've walked with Arthur and what God's done in his life. And I tell you, now I'm not putting him up and saying, ladies, this is a classic example, you all can go for Arthur. What I'm saying is that I, I, I want you to know what real love is before someone tries to sell you the counterfeit. So now dad goes and he tries to close the deal. So it says in verse 8, you know, by the way, by the way, verse 7, it says, and when the sons of Jacob came in from the field and they heard it, these men were grieved. The, wide, the word, by the way, is atzav, and it means to carve. They felt cut. They felt like they'd been stabbed from this. And they were very angry. The literal the word is like, you're hot, like a, like, like a volcano, for what it's worth. <clears throat> and it says what they had done, this disgraceful thing, literally the word is Nevada, which is the word for a crime. Uh, they'd done this crime in Israel. The only time in this chapter where we read the word Israel, and it's here. In other words, this is God's land. God says, I'm going to give you this land. This is not the place for raping people. 
Not that, not that there's any place for it. But he says, look at, and all the times, the 12 or so times that Jacob is mentioned by name, he says, the one time, like in Israel, this place that should be Israel, this place where it should be actually glowing with my presence, is a place that where these crimes are committed. And you know why? Because nobody, nobody is leading. And that's why. Dad is not leading. She gets off. He's not leading. And then dad doesn't even lead in regards to how to deal with the situation afterwards. And so if, I guarantee you, here's the problem. If you don't lead, and I'm not talking about you commandeering something that doesn't belong to you. But if you don't lead where God has given you the responsibility to lead, you'll follow. And someone else will take that role. And this country is full of Christian followers. There are no leaders anymore. We're too busy trying not to step on toes. Have you learned? If you're going to lead, you're going to step on toes. There's got to be someone that goes, look at this is what the Word of God says. Deal with it. That's just the way it is. Could you imagine if a football coach started saying, look, if somebody tries to trip you up or whatever, fall over and cry like, okay, maybe that does happen. But, but in the end of it, I'll get up and play the game. Could you imagine they go like, well, then just sit there and don't play anymore because darn it, if it really hurts, just go to the sideline. Sooner or later, there's going to be nobody left on the field. It's like a real coach is going to tell you, look, you know what? Part of the game is getting hurt. It's a contact sport. Contact means you're going to get contact. And if you're going to get contact, it's a pretty good possibility it won't always be pleasant contact. And if it's not pleasant contact, learn the fact of that. Get over it and let's actually do this thing. Let's win this game. But unfortunately, in this situation, and it'll happen many times, what we'll find is that the guy doesn't even step up. Let me tell you how old that book is. Genesis chapter 3. Find when the enemy is speaking to Eve where the husband is. Right beside her, according to the scripture. Do you know that the enemy never spoke to Adam? Speaks to Eve. She speaks back. He retorts. She volleys back. He goes and says, checkmate. She eats it and then hands it to him while he's with her. Now, somewhere down the line, she could go, well, you know, I kind of have secondhand information. I only got from what Adam told me, but Adam was the one who heard it. I mean, where down the line does he go, hey, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. I know better. God told me. And this God's not the party pooper. He's made all of this. Instead, he sits and acquiesces while his wife bites it, literally, and then follows her into it. What would have happened if he had stepped in like he should have? Because God says, I put you in the garden to tend to and protect it. And the first opportunity he has to protect, he steps back. Now, is that intolerance? You bet it is. But I'll tell you what, I'm intolerant of rapists and murderers and violent people in my house. How about you? you think it would be kind for me to say, oh, you know what, you like to beat up children. Come on in, I've got a couple. <laughs> we welcome everyone. Sooner or later, look, you know what, in our house it doesn't play like that. That's just the way it is. Now here's the problem. If dad doesn't step up, who is going to? I mean, she's just a piece of property, right? She's not even a piece of property for my favorite wife. How would you like to be that? Maybe you know what that feels like. The good news is there's a God who doesn't think of you as property. Jesus died for you so he could be with you. You're not a piece of property. You're the one thing that he, you are precious. You are the jewel for which his entire heart beats. So what happens? These brothers are like, and they're getting old now. I mean, they're getting old enough to marry. And, you know, you've got 12 boys. How long before this happens? And you realize these guys are looking going, did what to my sister? The chamor donkey speaks with him. Verse 8. 
The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Let's make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. We'll give our daughters to you. It was inevitable, wasn't it? Sorry. So shall you dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it. Acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. And whatever you say, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gifts, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. Now, this is the offer. Here's the bait. You can have everything, man. You can trade with us. You can have our stuff. You can have our land. You can have our girls. Oh, we just want this. What's up with that? Not a big deal. And you just tell us what the price is. Now, perhaps you'll see the same thing. You know, he'll come in and he'll be dashing. Ultimately dashing you into something you don't want to be dashed into. But what comes with him is a package, man. His world, his stuff, his, his, his environment. And that could really get you someplace. It could get you someplace real bad. Notice in verse 13 who steps up. By the way, we won't find Jacob speaking until the end of the chapter. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem. Now, these again, assumedly now, are her whole brothers, which appears as if they're playing more of the dad role to where than actually dad is. And somewhere down the line, it appears as if they had a huddle. They're like, well, hold on a second. Let's talk about that. And they're like, what do we want to do? I know. I got an idea. As the sons of Jacob answered, Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah and his sister, Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, We cannot do this thing. Give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. That would be a reproach to us. But on this condition will we consent to you if you become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you. We will become one people. By the way, do you realize how dangerous that is for a race of people that God said he was going to have his Messiah come from to a people that he's going to drive out? Second Corinthians says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do you realize what that means? You can't take two animals, hitch them together if they're not planning on going the same direction and expect anything good to come out of it. And you watch, and by the way, you can go to places where they still do animal plowing. And if you don't have two animals that are rightly put together, one of them will be chafed, man. Their neck will be all raw. Their shoulder will be exposed. Because the other one will actually be stronger. And truth be told, if you're willing to already go where somebody else is heading, then don't expect to think somewhere down the line they're going to about pace and go where you thought you wanted to go. You already, just, you already conceived the moment you started chasing after them. Amos says, how can two walk together unless they both agree? And if you go, well, well you know what, I'll tell you what. You know, I mean, my pastor's a little bit hardcore. You'll get over him, I'm sure. But, you know, I want to warn you, just, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get baptized. And I want you to, you know, to have this Bible in your hand. Here's a bigger one that will help because this is a Calvary. And, you know, and, and here's a couple songs. We're going to record them so you can sing them and sing them really loud. And you're charming, so you probably have a really good voice. You know, and so I want you to be able to do that. And I'll volunteer to help carry stuff at the end through the snow, something like that. And, and, and what you're doing is you're doing the same thing. You realize that? You're going, you know what? I mean, and, you know, I've heard someone say, you know, liars are horrible people, but the worst are religious liars. 
because, I mean, now you're lying with God in it. You know, and, and it's like, who wants that? And so what they're saying is, come on, all you have to do is play our religious game with us, and it'll be cool. And we all can just act like it's all one group. We can join hands and sing Kumbaya. And, you know, and in the end of it all, what's funny is, he says, and notice, by the way, for what it's worth in this, he says that if you don't do this, you know what we're going to do? Take a look at what it says. We're going to take our daughter and be gone. Wait a minute, our daughter? It's their sister. You kind of get the idea, but it seems like they're playing more the role of the father than dad is. Now, these words pleased Hamor and Shechem. Now, I wonder if they even knew what circumcision was. Because if it was, I don't know if they would be so pleased. Just the same. But, you know, I mean, these are countries, by the way, where they castrated their men and made them eunuchs. So, I mean, look on the bright side, I guess. Um, so the young men did not delay to do this thing. I and mean, we better get out and do this right away. That's because, again, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than the household of his father. Get that. Because dad, by the way, sees this whole thing as one great business investment. So Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of the city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, now they gathered all the people together. And you can imagine they're like, I've got good news. I've got some bad news. Which would you like to hear? We can get all kinds of property and some stuff, and we're going to get all these guys are rich. We can get all this stuff. And that's it. What do you think? You know, and so it says, so he came to the gate, and so it says, these men are at peace with us. Therefore, let us dwell in the land, trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them to let us take their daughters as our wives and give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Now, don't you find that a little bit strange? That every man, but now mind you, this is king, and what king says goes. It isn't like he's going to take a vote over this situation. So, look at the bright side. I could make you all eunuchs, but instead I'm just going to instead just circumcise you all. Now, I want to remind you, and I don't want to develop this a lot. I recognize we're in mixed company. But it isn't like, you know, there's, a, there's like an, you know, an A and E somewhere down the corner with good sharp, you know, scalpels and stuff. This is a sharp rock you're going to find somewhere with no form of, you know, bi- antibiotic. I mean, I like you to, you know, I don't want to develop that too much, but think about the fact of you're going to basically go, all right, we got a rock here. Who's next? Now, I don't know about you, but as far as I'm concerned, someone comes at me with a rock like that, and I think no one's property is worth that to me. Only on this condition will they consent to dwell with us if this is the case. But notice this is the pitch now, verse 23. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal be theirs, uh, of theirs be ours? Well, then you wouldn't get all their stuff. Only let us consent and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city, heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. I would have gone out of the gate and not gone back. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came to pass on the third day, and I find it's interesting that that's the day of Shechem, when they were in pain, and boy, that's an understatement, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi. Now, note this. What do we know about Simeon and Levi? They're brothers two and three. They're both sons of Leah, which means they're both two blood brothers of Dinah. And because dad has not stepped up, someone else does. And when someone else steps up, I guarantee you, it won't be good. Now, I'm not trying to feed that part, feed that part of you that says, look, I need to control everything. If you're kind of a control freak, I'm not doing that at all. But I am saying this. If the Lord puts something on your heart, don't expect somebody else to do it. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. And if you see a problem within the body of Christ, be the difference. I mean, the worst to me, the least respectful thing you can do is sit around and criticize something you won't even try to make a difference. Well, I just hate that. Well, then make the difference. But dad has stepped back. His boys have stepped in, and they've stepped in in an ugly way. They said, well, what can we do to kill them all? They, they, they will wind up killing every man, every man in that city. 
every man, because of one selfish boy. By the way, they'll kill him too. And they'll kill King Donkey as well. And so, uh, and so it says, they, and notice it says, it came to pass on the third day that when they were in pain, two of the sons of Jacob, notice he calls them sons of Jacob, by the way, because they are living up much more sons of Jacob than Israel. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly into the city and he killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house. Now she couldn't marry anyone else for the rest of her life, you would imagine. And went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain, and then they did one more thing. And by the way, it says the sons of Jacob here, and I wonder if there's more than just the two of them now that actually are doing the plundering. Two of them did the murdering, that's clear. So at this point, what does he have? I mean, if you think about it, he had a daughter that was raped in this chapter, and he has two sons that are homicidal maniacs. Now, we could comfortably call this a dysfunctional family. And they came upon the slain, plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the fields, and all their wealth, and their little ones, and their wives they took captive. One man had defiled a girl. And by the way, you've probably learned revenge always collects interest. Does that make sense? Now certainly something should have been done, but this was not it. In the end of it all, Women were made widows. Children were made orphans because two brothers decided they were going to exact revenge and they did it in a way that was merciless. And you know what the worst part is? I guarantee if you would have spoken to those two guys, if you would have spoken to Dinah at the beginning of the chapter, if this did take place over a period of time, she would have given you every reason why she was absolutely convinced she was okay. Much like many young people, and maybe you've been there, or maybe you certainly have talked to someone where they do the same thing, where they're like, look it, he speaks to my heart. I know he's not a Christian, but he's cooler, and he's more godly than the guys that I know that are calling themselves Christian. And all those things that you say, that you line up the litany with, and in the end of it all, you wonder how it is in the end of it all. They took and they took and they took and they took until one day you got slapped hard enough to realize that that's what they're doing. But I guarantee you, in route of that, you'll be absolutely, absolutely, absolutely convinced that you're okay. And that everyone else is wrong, and you're okay. Come on, you don't understand. So he's not a Christian, but he's charming. He's the prince. Look at what he's got going for him. And in the end of it all, that's what happens, and that's why God tells us that our heart is more deceitful than Satan itself. He says our heart is more deceitful than anything. That includes Satan then, doesn't it? But if you had to talk to these two boys, in the middle of it, dripping with other men's blood, I guarantee you, they would have spoke with the same confidence and said, what we do is justified. This is completely right. Look at what he did to our sister. I'm like, yeah, look at what he did to your sister. What did these guys do to your sister? And by the time you're done with the chapter, you kind of realize everyone seems to be absolutely sure that they know what's right. And then there's Dad. And you're like, so hey, Dad, do you have any idea what's gone on in this chapter? And he's like, what? Where are my boys? I don't even know if he calls them his boys. You can almost see Dad being relieved, going, Phew, well, one thing's for sure. I don't have to worry about these two guys being the firstborn. What we'll find out is the oldest of them is going to actually shack up with one of his wives, with Jacob's wife. You realize, this is a messed up family. One thing I've learned as a shepherd, from watching uh, people who shepherd sheep, is when a shepherd isn't clear, the sheep run into each other. They butt for being alpha sheep. It's crazy, I mean, because they're really not dangerous animals. They're like big cotton balls, so they just run into each other. 
I mean, all they really have is a hard head, which is still padded, you know. Uh, but you watch this. In the moment a shepherd steps into the situation, they chill out. And they chill out for good reason, because they know there's clear direction. Hey, look at Maybe the Lord's called you as the shepherdess of your, of your group, your friends. If you're a family member, if you're a husband or a father, I guarantee you, you are a shepherd. Like it or not, you are a pastor of the family. But wherever that group is, whatever influence God has given you, lead right. Because if you don't, someone else will lead wrong in your place. Now with that, let's close this up. So now, that the, the camp of Jacob has gotten quite a bit, a bit bigger. All of the women have been taken captive now, and they're all, so what do you have? You have a whole lot of maids and a whole lot of children that aren't yours now? That's a pretty crazy camp, don't you think? Who's watching after them? Jacob, now he finally speaks. The first time we hear him speak in the chapter, verse 30. And he speaks to the two killers, Simeon and Levi. And let's see if you can pick out the word that seems to be the most key word. You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, since I am few in number. They will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. Did you get it? You know why Jacob didn't stop on? Because he had eye trouble. That's why. Jacob was so full of I and me, he had no room. And that's the easiest reason why you will not step up to do what God's called you to. To be honest, because there's so much you in your world, there's no place left. You go, I don't want to do that because someone might not like me. I don't want to do that because I might have to put some extra effort in and I might get tired or I might not get respected or I won't get the applause that I deserve because I should be respected before I do anything. What, do you think everyone gets the peace prize just for getting elected for something? People actually should do stuff before they get awards. That's my attitude. And what's kind of strange about the whole thing is is that if we could be Jacob just like anyone because every one of us coming to Christ there comes that point where we realize, which person do we want to be? Do we want to be the person Christ wants us to be and make us? Or do we want to be the person we've already kind of fashioned that should have been, that we wanted nailed to the cross when we got there in the first place? Because the person who got nailed to the cross is the, is the me, 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 I, I, I person. That's this person. And he looks and goes, you know what, I'll just step back and let the world step in. And well, You know what, you're right. You know what, why, why do we have to call it Christmas? Let's just call it holidays. And sooner or later, someone's going to actually realize holidays is a conjunction of holy days, and they're going to have a problem with that word too. And then pretty soon they're just going to say happy days or something, you know, merry days to you. You know, I mean, you know, after all, oh, for goodness sakes, and we, you know, let's, let's just let that shut down. And whatever you do, don't share Jesus with anyone. Because if we don't share Jesus with someone else, someone else will step in and mention his name. Oh, it'll be, cuss, it'll be cussing, but at least his name gets mentioned. I'm convinced that the unsaved world says Jesus Christ more than we do. Because, to be honest, they're leading in what that term means. And they certainly are leading on what the term love means. And they're certainly leading on what the term religion means. And imagine if someone said, are you religious? And you said, yes. And they said, cool. That's happened to me about a month ago. And they're like, wow. So like, you could be like you and be religious? And I'm like, I don't really know what you mean by that, but I, I think so. I'm like, I love Jesus. I mean, if you don't tell people who Jesus is, someone else will. A Muslim cleric won't have a problem telling you that Jesus is just some form of impotent prophet somewhere that was had some good intentions, but Muhammad's so much better. Oh gosh, did I just say that here? Yes, I did. 
there's no improvement on God. You're aware of that, right? And I don't mean that in any mean way. I just want to tell you the truth. The Bible's still the Bible. God's still God. Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still died for our sins, still rose again, and he's the only one who's conquered death as far as I can see. He's the only one who loved me. I'll take him. And with this, so how does it end? The boys actually lip off to dad and say, should we treat our sister like a harlot? Well, he won't be treating her like a harlot anymore. Because he's dead. And this is how it ends. Is there a party that goes, oh, I don't feel so good about the end of this chapter. I don't think God wants us to feel so good about the end of this chapter. But let me just say this to actually make myself feel a little bit better and maybe you too and we'll close with this. The beginning of the next chapter, God will say, now let's go to Bethel. Back where you first found me, Jacob. Let's go to Bethel. You'd think at this point God would be like, you know what, I can find another family. Thank you very much. Out of the car. Why wouldn't he? Because he still delights in mercy and he's rich in it. Do you know what it means to be rich in something? That means when you spend more than anyone else, you still have some left over. He's rich in mercy. Even after all of this, do they still have a plan for you? I knew this was going to happen before you did it. Some, look, at, I don't know where you are. Maybe you feel like Dinah. Maybe you feel like you've jumped out into the world. You know, we know that we're supposed to be you know, in it but not of it but you've kind of somehow become of it and you feel like you've now become dined. You've been dined in this situation. And now somehow in it, people have kind of come into this thing and you feel like, man, I've just lost any marketable quality. I've just, uh, it's it, man, I'm done. I'm here to let you know God's got a brand new start starting right now. We're about to have communion in a second. But first let me ask you, where are you at with this Jesus? Have you accepted the gift of Jesus? And if you have, it doesn't say whoever came to Christ became a new creation. It says, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Do you know what that means? You continue to be a new creation. If it was just when I came to him, I became one, I'd be in trouble because I've done pretty rotten things since I came to Christ. Praise God, he continues to make me one. Because to be honest, it's the only way you can see me as pure because he continues to make me pure. But as we go to prayer, it's time for us to make a decision about what God wants in our lives. And I know he wants us to step up. As people, he wants us to step up and show the world who the real Jesus is. And when someone says, well, the real Jesus, please stand up, and he's living inside of you, it's time for you to leave your seat. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this text. I recognize it is a heavy text. I also recognize, Lord, in this, that you are doing some crazy things among us. I mean, clearly, you brought us here on this snowy day when everyone else seemed to have all kinds of um, obstacles to get here. And yet, Lord, you got us here and we sat here and we endured a very hard story about a poor girl who in the end of it all, out of naivety or whatever the case is, God, we don't, um, I, I don't even know how to place it other than this. She definitely winds up less um, out of it, Lord. And I, I would probably imagine she probably didn't feel very loved before she entered the chapter. And then somewhere in the middle or the beginning of the chapter, she probably felt very loved by a person who, by the way, clearly said he loved her and spoke to her heart from his. And then somehow in all of that, that love turned out to be a different kind of love altogether. So I ask God for a purifying, a purifying of, of the definition, Lord, of your terms. Uh, God, I, I just pray right now that you would please, for each of us, 
forgive us for where we've abused the term that defines your son being tortured at the cross. Or that, that, that act defines. God, I pray that you would make us people who make the difference. We recognize the world doesn't have a problem stepping up and leading in regards to destruction. And we have so often, we're so quick to not step up where you've called us to. And God, I just pray that you make us the leaders you intend for us to be. Not control freaks, but we lead by following you. And Lord, I've learned that there's no place safer than in your will. And Shechem was not your will. I can clearly see that. And so for any person right now who's in their Shechem, Lord, whether that they're in a place where they just don't belong, and they, they went into it to take, and they recognized that they kind of got into it much like those betting places where they've given so much and gotten nothing for it. And now they feel lesser for it. I pray you get us out of our Shechem's, God. Whatever those Shechem's are, get us out of them. And God, I just pray right now that you would, for each of us, Lord, myself included, just put us in that place, Lord, right now where, where we would not be deceived by the, whatever the sweet talk is, the things that could entice us. And Lord, that we would find the love that we need in you. And we would find everything, Lord, that we are, we are hungering for in you. And God, I just pray right now that you would, even right now as we prepare to go to your table, that we would take this time, Lord, and actually walk out of here pure. Lord, please, right now, speak to our hearts. Speak to us, Lord, about what changes you want to make in our life how or where you want to move us, where you want to motivate us, inspire us in action, and what you want to get us out of. Lord, I just pray right now for where we have stepped back and someone else or something else has come in its place. I pray, Lord, right now for every one of us, myself included, Lord, that we would, that first you would boot out, Lord, what, shouldn't be there and replace it, Lord, with, with those you've called to those positions, those posts. And I beg you for the soul of our city. I beg you for the soul of our city. It's desperate, Lord. It's desperate. And God, I recognize your church has sat idly by while the enemy has hopped into this right behind the steering wheel and started driving this thing into all kinds of horrible places. God, I pray you would raise up your people right now. Finally, Lord, we just want to openly confess our need for you. And if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ here in this room, I ask for you simply to pray this prayer with me. You can listen, and at the end of it all, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree, let those words be my words, so be it. And here it is. God, I, I, I do recognize that I'm not perfect. I mean, you, I'd be a fool to pretend that I am. But I recognize you've paid for all of my sins, all of my rebellion, all of my faults, all of my filth. 
up and paid for at the cross. And since it's been paid for at the cross, I want to accept the offer of your payment for my guilt. And as you've resurrected from the dead, just as your scripture promised you would, I say yes to the new life you offer me. Please don't let me drag the old me over. But I accept you as my Lord and Savior, Jesus, as you wish for me to be, accepting you. Father, adopt me as your own as you so desire. And put me in a healthy home now. Be my Lord, be my master, be my everything. Be my love, my first love. And cleanse me from all of the folly that I myself have steeped myself in. As I am yours, have me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.